Well, if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. We'll be looking at this psalm together today and then beginning Galatians next week. But today is Psalm 116, so if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 116, this is God's Word. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Well, this ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth now and the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. In C.S. Lewis's little book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, he speaks about something called the trough. Uh, this book, I've mentioned it before, it's set up as this fictional conversation uh, between two devils, the seasoned devil Screwtape and his young nephew Wormwood. And Screwtape goes through all the various ways that young Wormwood can tempt humans and do damage to the enemy's plans. And by enemy, uh, they're referring to God and his work of redemption in the lives of human beings. It's really a fascinating book that I hope you'll pick up and read someday. Uh, one trick that Screwtape tells a young Wormwood about is the trough. He says human beings go through peak times, and we know we do, right? There are times where we feel like we're on the peak. Uh, we celebrate the arrival of little Tanya Pele this week. That's a peak moment in the life of a family and in the life of our church. Uh, yesterday, Mariana and I learned that her sister is having a girl, and so that's yet one more girl added to the Acosta de la Cruz Warren clan. Uh, five between us, and that's not to mention the three sisters or the three uh, nieces I have on my sister's side. So it's just a girl party all the time in our family. Uh, that's a peak moment in the life of a family. 
Uh, the nervous young man on bended knee hears the words, yes, I will marry you. And most of the time, it's a shock that the person said yes. There's peaks, right, in our lives, but there's also troughs. Troughs, the divorce, the diagnosis, uh, the death in the family. All of us in some way, shape, or form will face troughs, uh, these moments of great despair, valleys, we could call them, or in the words of Psalm 116, great distress. And screw tape tells Wormwood to really hit people hard with temptation when they're going through the trough. Tempt them with sin, with despair, with lack of faith. And it's crucial, he says, to get them when they're in the trough. It's a crucial moment for temptation because uh, these valleys of despair are times that are designed for faith to grow, for faith to grow strong, because it has to hold out hope in a God who doesn't seem to be there. Screwtape tells Wormwood, our cause is never more in danger than when a human looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. In a word, that's faith. And Screwtape could just as easily be describing the faith that we see in Psalm 116. Uh, the psalmist here in Psalm 116 describes a time when his faith was challenged. Uh, it was bleak. Life did not, it was not looking up for him, yet he trusted in God. He hoped in God and sought to do his will. Maybe Screwtape could just as easily be describing uh, you this morning. Maybe you're here and you're going through the trough the valley, uh, the despair, struggling to find the faith to believe. Or maybe you've never, never experienced the heights of redeeming love because you have yet to know the Lord, but you're here, and we're glad you're here. Uh, whatever the case may be, the psalmist today declares that God, in fact, hasn't vanished. Even in his deepest moment of distress, he was there. Even when life seems to say the opposite, God is there. Uh, Psalm 116, I think, richly portrays the great deliverance of the gospel. And we're going to look at how it does so under three main headings. Three main headings. First, the psalmist's great distress. Secondly, his great deliverance. And finally, his grateful devotion. So his great distress, his great deliverance, and his grateful devotion. Uh, let, let's look at this, uh, really how it works together into one big idea. If I could put it all into one big idea, it's this. Because Christ greatly delivers us from our great distress at great cost to himself, we must be gratefully devoted to him. So first, look with me at the psalmist's great distress. We see this in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, the psalmist begins with a preview of praise. It really opens and closes with praise. Um, and here at the outset, we, we get a brief look at the motive behind the psalmist's praise. Uh, the psalmist writes, I love the Lord, verse 1, because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Don't miss that. Catch what he says here. I love the Lord. Why? Because. Because. See, it isn't just a subjective feeling of love. It's an objective affection anchored in the concrete acts of God towards him. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. The Lord has been attentive to his cries for mercy and grace in his time of need. And we see uh, in what he says that the Lord's attentiveness to us in our deepest distress, it, it should deepen our affection for the Lord. It should deepen our love for the Lord. 
It stirs up our love and affection for the one who rescues us. If, if you've been a Christian for very long, then surely you can resonate with that. When you go through the trough, but then you realize that God is hearing your cries. It deepens our uh, relationship with the Lord. The Lord has been attentive to a request for healing or for provision or for wisdom, for rescue from a besetting sin. And He has done it. And you have loved the Lord because you, He has heard your cries. Tears of joy and gratitude. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. The Lord's attentiveness to us in our times of distress, it, it deepens our affections for Him. Look with me at verse 2. It shows us another way that the Lord's attentiveness has impacted the psalmist. He says, because he turned his ear to me. Again, these objective motivations, these concrete acts of God. Because he has turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. I love the Lord, and because he has heard me, here's how I'm going to live. If you have children, uh, you have a living illustration of this. Because he has turned his ear to me. Uh, when your child is out playing in the yard and they fall and they scrape their knee, what do they do? Who do they turn to? Hopefully not 911 for just a scrape. I've heard stories about that. Maybe you have a story about that. Um, probably not going to cry out for the city mayor and dial city hall. They're probably not going to cry out for the person they just saw in line at the grocery store in the checkout line. No, they don't know those people. They're not going to call out for a stranger. They're going to call out for mommy and daddy because they know you. They know you. They know you will come running. It's almost instinctive, right? Get hurt, cry out for mom and dad. Fully confident that you will hear them and you will come running. That's how thoroughly the psalmist trusts in God. He will call on him like a child calls for his parents and he's never going to grow out of it. That's just going to be what he does for all his days. I will call on him as long as I live. So the Lord's attentiveness to us in our great distress, it deepens our affection for Him, but it also deepens our trust in Him, our trust in the Lord. Well, after this preview of praise then, the psalmist begins to reveal to us uh, his pain in verses 3 to 4. He remembers the great distress that he experienced. Uh, in verse 3, uh, he describes this distress as so sinister, so harrowing, uh, that it seemed like death itself. Verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead, laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. The snares of death. This is the imagery of a hunter. Of a hunter. Some of you know what this refers to. Uh, I was remembering, I hope this won't embarrass our brother Bo, but we were over at the Tucker's house and Sophie came running into the, to the dining room and said, Daddy, Daddy, there's, there's a flying squirrel in there. And I have no idea what she was talking about. But it was a hide that was all stretched out from something Bo had trapped. Uh, she thought it was a flying squirrel. We had just seen this at the Natural History Museum. She'd never seen one before and thought it looked pretty strange. So I explained to her how, how flying squirrels work. And they were pretty cool in a museum, but not so cool uh, lying around the living room. Um, but that's the psalmist's idea here is a snare that traps him and he can't escape like an animal uh, flailing in a snare. The psalmist has been such a, in such great distress that he felt like hunted prey and the snare is wrapped around his ankle and won't let him loose. We could translate the rest of the verse like this. The anguish of death haunted me. I was sad and distressed. Whatever the pre precise situation was, we actually don't know. He doesn't tell us what it was he was going through. Uh, he was on a collision course with pain and anguish and suffering. 
At the point where his life hit up against this great distress, it felt like he had fallen into the grave. I read in a study Bible this week, it, it, you could see it almost as if the, the snares of death coming up out of the grave and pulling him down into it. And that's what life feels like to him. We can all think of times, can't we, when life felt this way? When life felt like death? Maybe for you it's uh, easy to remember because you're living it and you're going through it. You feel like hunted prey, barely able to stay one step ahead of the diagnosis of the rebellious son or daughter on a dangerous path of financial ruin, of marital disaster, and you cry out to the Lord. We've felt that pit in our stomach, haven't we? The sleepless nights with our minds racing, the hundred mile an hour spinning thoughts that wouldn't let us sleep because life feels like death itself. We're trying to focus and we think of our work and our families and our friendships and it feels like life is just hunting you down and there's no escape. You don't think you'll be able to get away from the hunter's snare. Well, if that's you this morning, this psalm, uh, it resonates with you. It's there for a reason and it gives you hope for the hunting or the hunted and the dying. It holds out hope for those who feel like life is this way. Uh, George Horn, uh, the 18th century Anglican bishop, he regards Psalm 116 as a gospel hymn of the repentant sinner. He sees it as a hymn of the gospel. He says that the psalmist is expressing his gratitude for salvation from sin and death. I think that's beautiful. Uh, the great distress that the psalmist describes here certainly captures the heartache of our sin when the conscience informed by the truth of God's word is pricked and it pursues us like a hunter and it won't let us go. It dogs us, hounding us not letting up, chasing us down. Uh, Francis Thompson, uh, the English poet, he was a lifelong struggling opium addict from a religious family, and he describes the hound of heaven pursuing him in a poem. And so often when we feel like we're being hounded to the grave, it's actually the opposite that's happening. We're not being driven to the grave, we're being driven to God himself. This poem draws that out. Thompson portrays the hound of heaven pursuing him, not letting up, speaking these words of grace to him. He says, All which I took from thee I did not take, not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. Of course, that's the Lord speaking to him. Sometimes in our great distress, when life feels like death itself, it's actually God pursuing us. We're not being driven to the grave. We're being driven to all that we can find in the arms of our Savior. Our only hope then is to cry out to the Lord. Cry out to him, whether you're under the weight of suffering or you're in the grip of sin that doesn't seem to let you go. Cry out to the Lord. Verse 4, then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray deliver my soul. That's what we're to do. We call out to the one who we know will hear us. So we've seen the psalmist's great distress in verses 1 to 4. Let's look now at his great deliverance in verses 5 to 11. His great deliverance. I want you to see two things two very important things about this great deliverance. Uh, first, know that our God is gracious, righteous, and compassionate. Our God is gracious, righteous, and compassionate. This description we find in verse 5. Uh, it's telling because it shows us that the psalmist knows God well. He knows how God has revealed himself to his people. This is an abbreviation of God's revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6-7, the psalmist knows this God who has revealed himself to his covenant people. He has said that he is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving yet judging sin justly. It's all wrapped up in this description of God that the psalmist is alluding to. As a faithful Israelite committed to worshiping God, 
uh, in the midst of the congregation, as we're going to see in just a moment, he knows the Lord as he has been revealed to his people. He knows him. Doesn't that description of God just sound like a sigh of relief? Let me read verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. I think this is the psalmist's sigh of relief in the psalm. It's just that big, ah. And I think we know that because of what he says in the next verse. Well, in verse 7, in fact. Return, O my soul, to your rest. Return to your rest. Relax, soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The fact that we serve a God who is gracious, uh, righteous, and merciful, a God who deals bountifully and generously towards us, is rest for our soul. It's the ultimate sigh of relief. Relief that we can cling to the next time distress comes around. But relief that is particularly real to us when we're on the other side of what we're going through. When we're on the other side of that. When we've been brought low, yet the Lord has saved us. When our tears have been dried. When our feet are once again on solid ground. And not the shaky ground of life's troubles and problems. When life seems like life again. Uh, when we, as the psalmist says, walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So know that our God is gracious and righteous and compassionate. Let me just take a moment now to mention, maybe you fear uh, that if you were to be as honest as the psalmist, you might be sinfully honest. Uh, you might fear that when you express your frustration and your fear to the Lord, uh, that you're doubting these truths about God. You think you can't be honest and faithful at the same time. We hold these two things right in our hands so often, being honest and being faithful. And we wonder how we can hold on to both, how we can be real about both our frustration and our fear, uh, yet at the same, same time be real about our faith. We think maybe it hints at injustice in God to say that we are frustrated or confused or fearful. Uh, we think that maybe it feels like we're calling him cruel and merciless if we're just being honest about how we feel. Uh, maybe you're even tempted to believe that, to believe that God is indeed cruel and merciless because of what you're going through. That God isn't merciful and just. This psalm should encourage you because it shows you the heart of honest faith, the heart that can hold those two things in, in its hands and bring them to God and say, I'm frustrated, but I believed even when I said these things. Uh, so be encouraged in that. God knows who you are and he is merciful, gracious, compassionate. This gives us a model for honesty and hope, for frustrations and fear, uh, but also faith, all living together. So the second thing, second thing we learn, first we see that God is uh, gracious, righteous, and merciful. Uh, the second thing we learn is that uh, this great deliverance is, as one commentator called it, uh, faith hard-pressed. This is faith under pressure. Faith hard-pressed can still cling to God's great deliverance. That's the second thing. Faith hard-pressed can still cling to God's great deliverance. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Verses 10 and 11. The psalmist says, I believed... Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. I think this is one of those examples where Bible translations can make the Bible sound more bible than they need to. So let's put it like this. If the psalmist is just crying out maybe in 2024, he says, I believed in God, but man, this is the worst. That was the worst, what I was going through. And what a bunch of liars I've had to put up with, by the way. He's just spilling it out to God. He said, I believe, but that was the worst thing I could be going through. You see this tension, right? The psalmist is clear on the one hand, I believed, he says. But it's as if his faith is just teetering up at the, at the edge of doubt, 
at the edge of giving in or giving up. It's right on the edge, just wobbling, ready to fall. He's pushed up to the ledge. His affliction and all of the hopeless human solutions are filling his view. Uh, But he still clings to the truth, even in the midst of that. He believes, he trusts, he has faith. Faith, hard-pressed, can still cling to God's great deliverance. Even if that faith is a splintering rope hanging on by a sliver, he still believes. And I want you to hear that and be encouraged by that. It's so important. Uh, Even just a sliver of faith, that's enough, friends. If it's this giant sailor's rope you're hanging on to, and it's holding on by one thread, that's enough. Because your faith doesn't keep you from falling. It's not your faith. It's the one in whom you believe that keeps you from falling. It's the one in whom your faith rests. He grasps you by the wrist, you know, like like a climber who's fallen over a cliff, and he won't let you go. You will not fall because he is the one who keeps you. It's his strong arm holding on to you, the strong, righteous, merciful God who will never let you go. That's why I think that we see in the psalm that this great deliverance has to, it can only lead to grateful devotion. How can we not worship the one who holds on to us like that? When our faith can barely hold on to him, yet he holds on to us. So we've seen that unfold, and let's look now at, finally, verses 12 to 19. We've seen the great distress, the great deliverance. Let's look at the grateful devotion that this all leads us to. Verses 12 to 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? God has brought you through the valley. He's brought you uh, through to the other side, and you think, what can I give God? It's, it's our instinct, right? We want to contribute. We see God's brought us through. It wasn't anything we could do. Well, what can I give him? And then God says, take and receive. What can I give you, God? Take and receive. I'll take the cup of salvation, and I'll lift that up. We only have to give to God what he has given to us. Uh, I love what Derek Kidner says about this in his commentary. He writes, The New Testament itself could hardly give a better glimpse than this of heaven's grace and man's response, all in the simplest, most directive terms. The opening question and unexpected answers show up well. How can I repay the Lord? I will take in my hands the cup of salvation. The cup of salvation. What's, what's the cup referring to? I think it does draw on the idea of a drink offering in Numbers 28, part of the, the worship of God's people under the old covenant. We can say that considering what he says in verse 17. He says, I will offer uh, to the Lord uh, the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. But I think there's a little twist here. There's a little twist because the cup, the cup he lifts up isn't the cup of thanksgiving. It's not exactly the cup of thanksgiving. It's the cup of salvation that he's been given. It's the cup of salvation that he's received. In other words, he only has to give what he's received. And in the words of Psalm 23, that cup is overflowing. He's filled to the brim, just overflowing with grateful devotion to God because of what he's received. It's this beautiful infusion of the gospel into this old covenant ritual. It ratchets up the symbolism pointing to salvation in Christ. Kidner goes on and says, as the opposite of the foaming cup of wrath which we deserve, as in Psalm 75, 8, and as something freely offered, it displays the very pattern of the gospel. Man is the one who cries out. That is to say, over and over in the psalm, he is the one who calls on the Lord. Man is the suppliant, and he's the recipient. Before he has anything to give, his only gifts are debts of gratitude. Debts of gratitude. Debts of gratitude work differently than ordinary debts. I'm sure you know this. If you have student loans, you know this. The government doesn't want your gratitude. It wants cash to pay your debt. 
But a debt of gratitude, uh, it's different because the debt has been paid. There is no debt per se. The bill has been wiped clean. But there's a debt of gratitude. Thanks to God for what he has fully done, paying all of our debts. And how great is this debt of gratitude? What do we really owe here? Well, I think we see it as we see the psalm drawing us towards Jesus, as we remember how Jesus took the foaming cup of wrath and we've received salvation. We must live lives of grateful devotion to Christ because of how great a cost that salvation came to him. Notice this with me now. Moving closer and closer to Jesus through Psalm 116, this psalm takes us to the table that we're about to celebrate. It takes us to the table in a really surprising and glorious way. Uh, it directly relates to Christ's suffering on our behalf. At the end of the Last Supper, we heard it read earlier from Mark, we read this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Have you ever wondered what hymn they might have sung together? Well, to set the context a little bit, Psalm 113 through 118 are a collection of psalms that were associated very early on with the Passover celebration. We aren't told what hymn the disciples and Jesus sung, uh, but we know it was probably from the songbook of the Passover, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So it's likely that at least at some point that evening, this psalm that we're looking at today was sung by the Savior and the disciples. In fact, it very well may have been this hymn that Jesus and his disciples sang as they departed for Gethsemane on the path that would take Jesus to Calvary. And I actually think it was Psalm 116 uh, that they sang before they left for Gethsemane. It's been pointed out, and I guess I hadn't thought about this until someone pointed it out. If the disciples were praying, I'm assuming if the disciples were sleeping while Jesus was praying, I'm assuming Mark couldn't keep his eyes open either. Um, being the young guy, they're always taking naps. And they're off sleeping while Jesus is praying. Then who is there to hear what Jesus prayed? When this, when this gospel is penned, the disciples are all snoozing. So who hears the prayer that is recorded in the gospel? Could it be that the Spirit brought to mind the songs of the supper uh, as the gospel writers wrote? Mark 14, 33 to 34. And he took Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Psalm 116.3 The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Mark 14.35 And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Psalm 116.4 Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I think there's a strong case to be made that Psalm 116 underlies the Savior's suffering in the garden. It gives the contours and the content to Jesus' grief and anguish as he's crying out with the shadow of the cross bearing down on his soul. Bearing down on him. And of course, the suffering didn't end there. From Gethsemane to Golgotha, Jesus was in great distress in order to deliver you. To deliver you. You see, what the psalmist says in Psalm 116.15 is true to the highest degree in the cross of Calvary. Psalm 116.15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Or remembering Psalm 72, 13 and 14, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. 
from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. This psalm, as a psalm on the lips of Jesus, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And then in verse 8, for you have delivered my soul from death and my eyes from tears, pointing to what was to come and the empty tomb. So going back now, thinking about how this is pointing us to Jesus and what he has done to deliver us, what are we to do? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? The answer is simple, but it's not easy. Uh, What shall we render to the Lord for all of his benefits to us? Nothing but our very lives lived in grateful devotion in gratitude and praise for the gospel. That's all we have to do. It's simple, but it's not easy. Living lives completely and totally given to him. The psalmist says in verse 16, O Lord, I am your servant. We find him worshiping the Lord in his life, uh, fulfilling his duties as an old covenant Christian or an old covenant believer, uh, worshiping according to the worship of the old covenant, according to the Levitical law. It's this picture of, of... devotion through and through he pays his vows vows that he probably made to the lord lord save me and this i will do he offers his sacrifices he publicly praises the lord here at the end of the psalm well if we turn to romans to the apostle paul uh, a jewish now a believer and apostle thoroughly committed to the sacrificial life of psalm 116 uh, we find him narrowed in now through the lens of the gospel on a life that's lived as a sacrifice to god you don't have to turn there, but Romans 12, 1 to 2, I'm sure many of you know it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a great description of the grateful devotion that we're to give to God, offering ourselves up as living sacrifices to God, worshiping the Lord as witnesses to the watching world. Well, we've seen the great distress, the great deliverance, the grateful devotion of the psalmist in Psalm 116 and how that takes us to Jesus. It's all ultimately because of him, isn't it? Uh, To remember what Screwtape said, I think it's incredible to see the experience of the trough, the valley, the sorrow of feeling abandoned by God, uh, to see all that through the lens of Jesus and how he went through that for us. We could say that Jesus, he looked around on a universe from which every trace of God seemed to have vanished. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet he still obeyed. Because of that, he praises God, as it were, in the land of the living. And he lifts us up to live in the land of the living. And we can lift up the cup of our salvation and our deliverance and live lives that are devoted to him. Let's pray together. Father, in light of what we've seen today in Psalm 116, help us to trust you even in the trough, even in the valley and the great distress. Help us to remember Jesus who went through the deepest valley and the greatest distress to bring his people through, to bring us into the land of the living on the other side, not just out of the difficulties of life, but out of the deadly grip of sin and death. By faith in Christ, make us walk in the land of the living forever with our living Savior. Father, what shall we render to you for so great a salvation? Because you have delivered us from our distress, may we always live gratefully devoted to you and to the one who came and took the cup and drank it to the dregs for us so that we can lift salvation and praise to you. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.